spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Our name might not be in frosting, but we have reached a milestone. It's episode 200 of the Down and Nerdy podcast. I'm James Witham, and thank you so much for being here. The past 200 episodes, actually, if you know about the history of the show, I've only missed two episodes of this show since it started, and that was when my son was born three years ago. I took a couple of weeks off to be dad and then came back, so I guess for 198 for me, but a heck of a lot more than that, I can guarantee you. But thank you so much for following the show over the years and over the episodes, even if you're new to the show. Appreciate you being here. And yeah, we're going to make a big to-do out of this week's show. Got a couple of guests for you this week, highlighted by Jessica Lucas, who plays Tabitha Gallivan on Gotham. We'll talk to her about the show's return on March the 1st and everything that's been going on since she's been a part of the show. But up next, yeah, it's what we're reading, but a little bit different. Going to be joined by comic historian, writer, and editor Hope Nicholson to talk about her projects, Kickstarter, and a little bit of Valentine's Day chat, too. That's next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hello, this is Tom Ellis from Lucifer on Fox, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I can't think of a better way to start off our 200th episode than with a comic book historian and somebody who's bringing so much great stuff back and doing so much great stuff of her own. As a matter of fact, she's the creator and owner of Bedside Press and a whole bunch of other stuff from Kickstarter. It's Hope Nicholson. Hope, how you doing? Hi, good. Glad to be here. So, I mean, speaking of Kickstarter, you've done a pretty good job on Kickstarter lately. You've had seven successful comic book projects in a row recently. So what actually made you originally want to use that platform as a springboard? Well, it hadn't been available to Canadians uh, when I first heard about it, but I had some American friends that were doing either film projects or comic book projects through Kickstarter. And I thought it was a really exciting and innovative way to get content made, not to sound like a, a you know that I'm, I'm a spokesperson or that for them, although I am a representative of them at conventions and such. And I really just wanted to see what would happen because when I looked into it, it looked like there was no risk. Like you put a project up and if it doesn't get funding, no one loses money, you don't lose money, right. all you lose time. So it was kind of an exciting way to start making content. And prior to that, I had been working in the film industry and pitching projects and things like that. And it was so hard to get the notice of any producers or uh, production companies to make my projects. And so I decided to switch to publishing instead. And the first project actually took off. So I was I was really amazed. And after that point, I was just obsessed with publishing. You know, it's funny because do you think that things like Kickstarter and even Humble Bundle to an extent, do you feel like they are kind of more of a grassroots campaign for comic books more so than we've ever had before? I don't know about uh, more so than we've ever had before, but I definitely think that whatever they're doing is really effective. I think that the days of the direct market are, if not going away entirely, are definitely fading to uh, a very, very low strength. In fact, they're probably similar right now to what they were in the 70s when they started, of just being a place for hobbyists to come and get their comics, but not really reaching out to the wide world. And I think using digital platforms is a really great way to access different kinds of the marketplace. Actually, some of those projects that you've had on Kickstarter, like The Secret Love of Geek Girls, eventually kind of went on to be published by other companies. In that case, it was Dark Horse. So talk a little bit about, for anybody that may, might have a Kickstarter just in general, talk a little bit about that transition from going from a Kickstarter to a larger publisher. Yeah, it's been a really um, circulous route, actually. If I don't know if circulous is a word, but a circular route, I guess. It works for me. My first... Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> so the first project I made uh, was Nelvana of the Northern Lights, which was also the first one that was picked up by a publisher. So that was a 1940s uh, comic book reprint, and IDW at the time was picking up a lot of different Kickstarter projects to kind of throw at the market and see what worked. Because for them, again, there was no risk because it had already been funded, it's mm -hmm. already been completed. The only money they had to put out would be for the printing and marketing. So... They didn't really do any marketing at that time for this book, unfortunately. So it kind of was an interesting way to get that transition from Kickstarter publishing to uh, professional, you know, uh, 
large publishing companies being interested in my work. And it wasn't the greatest experience just in terms of sale or reach, but the product they turned out was amazing and so much better than anything I could have made on my own. And a few projects later, which I started to do through my publishing company, Bedside Press, The Secret Loves of Geek Girls took off and became hugely successful, which was a, a bit of a surprise to me. I knew it would get funded, but I never knew it would reach into the six figures by, by any means. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I was doing a project with Margaret Atwood for Dark Horse called Angel Catbird, uh, putting together the package, finding artists, things like that. And I happened to ask them if they'd be interested in uh, publishing Secret Loves Geek Girls get out to a wider audience since clearly there was an interest and they were interested. But just in case, I already also asked around for other publishers. But Dark Horse definitely was the best fit for that book. Absolutely. Another book of yours that you've done recently that I love is The Spectacular Sisterhood of Superwomen. It kind of highlights so many female protagonists that have come from comics. Now, I do feel like a lot of comic book fans don't really consider characters outside of like Marvel or DC in that discussion often enough. Now, would you agree with that? And if so, is that something that needs to be fixed? Oh, yeah, absolutely. The biggest thing that happened when I did The Spectacular Sisterhood of Superwomen is that I didn't want to focus just on the most popular characters, because that's a history that's been done over and over and over again. But what I want to also highlight were characters that were weird, that were obscure, that were rare, that highlighted a different aspect of the industry, whether it was something about like the peculiarities of the distribution biz, or whether it was highlighting small press and indie publishers. And uh, that, to me, is still an important part of history that often gets overlooked when people are doing big, grand, overarching books. Do you kind of feel like the word hero isn't used in a broad enough brush? Because there are all kinds of heroes that don't necessarily wear capes, and I think that's something that you very much highlighted in that work. So do you think that hero is kind of a word we need to use with a little bit broader of stroke? Oh, definitely. The superhero genre is is very specific and niche. Well, I wouldn't say niche. It's, it's very large, as we know, but it's contains very specific attributes, but there are a lot of characters that are heroes that don't fall into that genre at all. Like uh, war comics, for example, or Western comics still feature heroic characters, but they're definitely not superheroes. Absolutely. Now, I'm sure that backers are very excited to have the gothic tales of haunted love finally on the way, and it looks Mm -hmm. like there are a lot of stories from a lot of different eras in that book. Now, I'm sure they're all great, but were were there a couple of particular time periods or settings that really intrigued you the most? Oh, yeah. It was such an exciting project to put together. In fact, I don't think there's been a project since Secret Loves of Geek Girls that I've been this thrilled to be a part of as a publisher. And um, what's really exciting, too, is that, as I said, uh, my my process, sorry, my progress in the comic industry has kind of been a circle. And now I have distribution for my company myself. So this is also the first book that's going to be published for Bedside Press to a global marketplace, which is scary and huge. But for comics that are my favorite ones for time periods, I'd say definitely Minefield by Hien Pham is probably my favorite one. It's set in Vietnam in the 1960s, I believe. So there's a lot of war going on and it's just still a really sweet, soft love story with a ghost involved, of course. Of course, yeah. So you've worked with a lot of great um, writers and, and artists and things like that that we love, like Teeny Howard and Marguerite Bennett, but you've also worked with some people that haven't really done comics before, and you've kind of guided them along in that process as, as an editor in it, or in other roles. What is it like to take someone that hasn't been in comics before, and what's the first thing that they kind of need to know when they enter this realm? Yeah, I've uh, definitely been the initiator for a lot of prose writers to get into comics. Um, the person that I'm most known for associating with, I guess, is Margaret Atwood and putting together the Angel Catford books and her involvement in Secret Loves of Geek Girls and Secret Loves of Geeks. But there's definitely other writers that I've been involved with for the Moonshot anthologies, which were indigenous comics, who were done by writers who'd never written a comic book script before. And so uh, the biggest thing I tell them, first of all, is that this isn't you telling the artist necessarily what you want on the page. What it is, is a collaboration between you and the artist. This is no longer your story. It is both of your stories written together and made together. And the artist, who I usually link them up with as someone a bit more established, will definitely have a better eye for the sense of visual pacing that you as a writer just don't have. 
Now, I wanted to go back to, as you've done a lot of romance comics re- recently, I think we've touched on that. Now, is there a comic book romance over the course of time that you'd like to see explored more, or is there one that you're surprised that has never been done? Oh, a comic book romance that's never been done. Uh, I think everything under the sun has really been done, unfortunately. But, yeah, no, I'm... I'm think a lot of things have been done i don't think there's a lot of stories that have been dealt with um in terms of ace representation and uh characters kind of navigating being asexual and falling in love so that would probably be something that would be good to do i know a few comics in recent years have been touching on that like the jughead comics for Mm -hmm. example Mm -hmm. but i don't know if they ended up giving him any kind of uh romantic interest themselves because I think he was like fully aromantic in the books as well. I think I think that was the case too. Yeah, I could I could see that uh, somebody trying to tackle that at some point. Yeah, I think so, and I think it's a great way too to kind of keep a story flowing and focusing on the action. Because a lot of times, I think um, love stories are shoved into action and adventure comics when they don't necessarily feel like a natural fit. Mm-hmm, yeah. I love romance stories. I love love stories. But at the same time, I hate a one that's done badly or done clumsily. And so if it's a story about an adventure and people having fun, you don't necessarily have to put in a love story just because you think you should. I'm so glad you said that because I've felt that way for a long time. And I think a lot of readers have, too. (laughs) Yeah, it's definitely something that um, is seen, I don't know, as a requirement maybe to appeal to female readers. But a lot of us just want to read a regular story sometimes without uh, being forced to pretend to care about what if the characters are going to hook up or not. Absolutely. And let's talk about a little bit of romance now, because you know, Valentine's day is right around the corner and there may be some fellow nerds out there that are still looking for that (laughs) special someone. So what advice can you give for anyone who's trying to gather the courage to make that connection? Oof! I feel like I'm the worst person in the world to give advice about love since uh, I'm single myself. (laughs) That's okay though. (laughs) But I mean, the thing that brought me the most comfort was talking to other people about the process because a lot of times my anxieties, my worries, mm-hmm. everything like that that I thought were unique to me when I ended up talking to, well, basically strangers about it. I just started blabbering about my my history and my fears to anyone that would listen to me. Um, I found out how many other people had the exact same issues that I did and that really made me feel more comfortable and relate to more. And after that point, I definitely felt a lot more comfortable approaching people I was interested in. So it was kind of a gradual process. There's no magic way to make things work, unfortunately. If there was, I'd be pushing the magic button right now as well. So I, I, I'm, I'm with you because when I, when I met my wife, I was terrified. When I first met her, I'm like, how am I going to talk to this woman? I had no idea what to say, and I blurted out something. And it must have worked because, you know, it's going to be 10 years of marriage this year. So I, I guess I'm doing something right. Yeah, I mean, what people say is usually just get involved in things that you're interested in, and that way you'll at least meet a lot of different people, whether someone that's involved in your hobby is going to be someone that you're going to be attracted to and want to date, or whether it's someone that's a friend of theirs. Either way, it makes you a lot more comfortable with humans as a whole and makes it easier to relate to people. So definitely recommend getting involved with things, events, hobbies. And just so everyone knows, that that anxiety is normal. She had it. I had it. It's okay. Just go for it, right? It's, it's, I think that's the bottom line here. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, try to read the room. Don't go for it if someone's like... Oh, totally. Yeah, <laughs> not, yeah. Not interested at all. Yeah. Um, but yeah, definitely anxiety is a very, very normal part. And that's true whether or not you decide that romance and uh, sex and love are for you or whether they're not for you. Now let's get back to your Kickstarter projects for a little bit because you've gotten to work with some amazing creators. And I feel like... On quite a few of these projects, readers actually got to know a lot about the creators themselves, especially in the Secret Love of Geeks. So, do you feel like there's a kind of conne- that kind of connection is vital to the future of the industry as a whole? I think it's specific to small presses for sure, where kind of the personal brand of a creator influences whether or not people buy their work, and you can see that a lot with people who are very popular on Twitter, who are really good at connecting to other people through social media. Uh, they often have a lot of people buying books, not just because they like their writing style or their art style, but because they like them and because they want to support them. And I think that's something that's integral to a lot of small press um, publishers, but not necessarily essential either. You don't have to force yourself to be on social media if you don't want to. But I know for, I just got a message today on Twitter about someone who read Secret Loves of Geek Girls recently and said, 
I want to be friends with every single woman in this book. And see, <laughs> that was that was the point of the book is that not all of us have in-person social networks to talk to mm. about all these things that we're feeling or worried about. But by reading people's stories and getting a good idea of of everyone's peculiarities, it can just make everyone feel a bit more comforted, even if you're not actually friends with these people. Oh, I totally agree with that. Now, like you were talking about before, Bedside Press, very exciting project for you right now, very exciting things that are happening. Is there anything new that fans can expect in the, next, in the coming months or anything that they can really look forward to that you can actually tell us about? <laughs> well, I definitely uh, am working right now. I just got the physical copies of Gothic Tales of Haunted Love in a few days ago, so I'm really busy working on shipping those out, uh, getting those all together, so funders just need to be patient for a few weeks. But for the next few projects I have coming out, I think the one that I'm really excited for is an adaptation of a 1970s Canadian crime novel called Work for a Million. Nice. And it was actually brought to me by the original writer. And it's like very pulpy, very noir novel, very like standard genre. Uh, but what sets it apart is its hook, which is that it's also the first pulp novel to star like an out lesbian detective as its lead. And she's a very compelling character. Uh, she's tough. She's kind of just like a classic noir detective where she might be falling for the love interest, but at the same time, she kind of puts up a front to protect herself. So I think it's going to be a really fun adaptation. It's also something completely unlike I've ever done before because I've never commissioned a full graphic novel in this way. I usually stick to either anthologies or uh, adaptations that are already done. Hey, you had me at Noir, so I'm in. Yeah, I'm really excited. We're actually doing a call for artists right now um, through the next month until the end of February because we have a writer attached. We've been adapting writer attached. We have a ton of pinups and a cover artist attached. Uh, but we're looking for that really special artist collaborator to bring the work to life. So if people are in. The details are on the website at Bedside Press. Yeah, that means bedsidepress.com. You can find out more about all the other great books that Hope has as well. If you want to know more about Hope and other stuff that she's done as well, you can go to hopenicholson.com and also follow at Bedside Press on Twitter as well. It's Hope Nicholson, comics creator extraordinaire. Thanks for joining us this week. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was so great to talk to Hope Nicholson. Not only did she have really good insights in the comic industry as a whole and the history of it, but, I mean, she's got some darn good books as well. If you don't believe me, just follow at Bedside Press on Twitter. Go to BedsidePress.com as well. As a matter of fact, a couple of those books, including The Secret Loves of Geek Girls, is going to be available in a Humble Bundle. It's actually available right now called The Geek Gals Humble Bundle, which supports Girls Who Code, which encourages young girls to get involved in computer science and coding. It's a really, really good cause. So you can go to HumbleBundle.com and support Hope and that cause as well and get some great books for yourself. Our 200th episode continues up next. It's This Week in Geektainment right here on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, I'm Melanie Scrifano. I play Winona Earp, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Since it's episode 200, it is a little bit bigger, and this week in Geektainment, we usually review, you know, a TV show or a movie or something like that, but since it was trailer palooza this week since the last time we talked i just decided you know what let's throw all these trailers in one big 200th episode this week in geek tenement and take care of them all from start to finish so i've got to start with the latest one though and that is the venom trailer from sony not going to give you any release dates here i'm sure you'll imdb them when i'm done here anyway to look at the cast and all that stuff so let's talk about venom for a second and can we just get the symbiote in the room out of the way here we do get to see the symbiote in a box, and then after that, it's nothing. We don't really get to see much, if anything. This is a vague teaser of a movie that looks like it's going to be a thriller. If you didn't know that this was a Venom movie, then how on earth would you know? If it wasn't right there in the title, I would have no idea that this movie had anything to do with Venom. This could be any standard thriller or horror movie that looks like it's come out in the last five to ten years. And, I mean, maybe that maybe that could be considered a good thing. I certainly don't really consider it a good thing, because all I think about is some movies that have come before this one. And that is, like, let's take Godzilla, Godzilla as a perfect example. How much did you actually see Godzilla in the Godzilla movie? Hardly at all. And then, and then you look at something like Kong Skull Island... That certainly showed Kong, but not a ton, but did it well. So, here's my question. Where is Venom going to fall 
in this range of not at all or just enough. Because I think that's going to be the key to the entire success of this movie. And yes, you've got to reach a little bit. You've got to make these movies a little bit different. You can't just make it, you know, him in the suit the entire time and and then you'll you'll just have a great time watching Venom do his thing. No, no, no. We have to have more than that. I get that. But at the same time, it's still a Venom movie. It's still a it's still a Spider-Man spin-off movie. And I know we still have to get a look at Carnage at some point as well, but you have to show him in the suit early on in these trailers because this isn't a movie that's a slam dunk for a lot of people. I'm sorry. I know that if you're a Spider-Man fan, this is a Venom thing that you've been waiting for for a long time. Ever since the horrible representation in Spider-Man 3, I get that. I want to get it done right too, but that's just it. I want to get it done right. I don't want to see Tom Hardy being Tom Hardy for the vast majority of this movie. And I like Tom Hardy. I think he's a good actor. I think it was hilarious that he posted that video the other day about him talking to his dog with, with in the Bane voice. I thought that was great. I love Tom Hardy. But I don't need to see Tom Hardy for two hours and Venom for five minutes. So I'm really, really hoping that that's not exactly what happens. Moving right along to the Star Wars world, Star Wars world now. And Solo, a Star Wars story. We got the Super Bowl teaser. And then now we've got the full-on trailer for Solo, and this is again one of those trailers that just made me go, eh, okay. I mean, you, you see, you get to see Lando, and Donald Glover I think is going to do a really good job as Lando, and you get to see Han being kind of Han, I guess. I mean, it's you hear the reports that, you know, they're having acting concerns and all the reshoots that happened. And, you know, you could see a lot of Star Warsy stuff. You could see ships flying around and Woody Harrelson creating a team and where Han gets a start. And that's kind of what this is supposed to be, right? But at the same time, I don't know. Something just felt a little off in this for me. Maybe it was the vibe. Maybe it was... You know, my preconceived notion of what I think Han Solo is based on what Harrison Ford was able to do with the character. But isn't that the danger in doing a movie like this? How can you not have a preconceived notion about a character like Han Solo? And, you know, you want him to be likable, of course, right? But he this is a young Han Solo we're talking about. Think about the Han that we met in Star Wars A New Hope. He was kind of a dick, right? You know, out for himself sort of thing. So this movie to me needs to either do one of two things. You need to explore that side of him and let him be the smuggler. Let him be the dick a little bit. Let him be a little bit unlikable. Or you need to tell me how he got there. You need to tell me why he became that way. If you can do one of those two things and make the story interesting, then you've got me. If it's just a random movie that has a lot of fan service and, you know, about him and Chewie meeting and being best bros kind of thing, I want to know how they met, okay? But I don't want it beat to death. I want it to be a part of the story. I don't want it to be the story. And, you know, give me something on the Millennium Falcon, too. I would love a history of the Millennium Falcon kind of movie. But that's just the kind of weirdo that I am. I would love to see that. But, you know, that's my worry about this, is that they're they're going to make Han something he isn't just for the sake of doing this movie. So hopefully that's not the case. And again, this is all based on one trailer. But these are just my initial thoughts. Obviously, this is something that can change. Something that is definitely not changing, and that's a good thing, is Deadpool. We see the Deadpool 2 trailer that came out, the latest one. We finally get to meet Cable. We finally get to meet Domino, kind of. And maybe we have the X-Force team assembled. I'll let you speculate on that. But, I mean, how hilarious was this trailer with the action figures and Deadpool being Deadpool, the swipe at Justice League and the Henry Cavill mustache fiasco. And I gotta say, we never really had any doubts that Josh Brolin was going to be a great cable, right? I, I don't think that anybody had doubts about that. But this further just pushes that up to another level, that he is going to do an amazing job. I, I'm of the mind that Josh Brolin's cable is going to be 10 times better than Josh Brolin's Thanos. And again, nothing against Josh Brolin. But I really, really think that cable is the role that he should be playing. He could play both. I don't mind that. But I really think cable is his wheelhouse. I think that this is something that he was kind of born to do. And I can't wait to see the interaction between the two. And what I love about this movie is that at this trailer, it, it's not apologizing for what the first movie, movie was. And it's taking the stuff, the, any any sequel, you worry about it being just 
the same beats, the same jokes as the first movie, right? Because it worked so well the first time, most movie studios will go, okay, let's do that again because they seem to like that. Well, no, we're seeing it's the same characters, even in this trailer. We're seeing the same characters, per se, but we're not seeing the same beats. The jokes are different. You're seeing a little bit different interactions as well. So as if I had any doubts, which I didn't, the Deadpool 2 is going to be great. Now I'm hyped even more. This was the trailer that I saw this week that got me hyped for, for the movie that was coming. And and a lot of that is base, is based on how well they ended up doing the first Deadpool movie and my faith in Ryan Reynolds. But it seems like this is the one movie that the studio is going, you know what, go ahead, you do your thing. You, you know, we know that you've got this. So take care of it. Can't wait for that movie to come out. Now, quickly, Avengers Infinity War had their Super Bowl spot. It wasn't long. It was pretty quick. And to me, it doesn't really show us anything different other than a little bit different stuff with Cap. And I think that this is all kind of stuff that we expected based on how Civil War ended and how that all went down. So we don't really get any new beats other than the whole where's Hawkeye question that keeps popping up. And, you know, this is going to make maybe you're going to be mad at me for this, but I'm not sure I care. I mean, there's so many characters in this movie, and you're seeing a bunch of different kids. You know, this basically was, you know, we could see these characters meet, and these characters meet, and that's what a lot of these spots and and trailers have been so far, and that's fine. Don't get me wrong. I I know you have to do that, but at the same time, there's so many characters, and I know Hawkeye is going to pop up at some point, but is it really that important? Aren't we reaching here, or aren't we getting enough to not worry about Hawkeye and where he is. I'm sorry, it just doesn't matter to me. And I, I hope, I really do hope they give Hawkeye the moment of, you know, I'm not the joke anymore. I can actually do something constructive. I hope they give him that moment somewhere in this movie. And I think that they probably will. And I think that that's why they're holding him out. Moving on to the Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom trailer. that of course, came out during the Super Bowl as well. And this was another one that, again... You get to see Chris Pratt's character being Chris Pratt's character, and you get to see him, you know, with Blue, and, and, you know, it's that relationship that they've been able to develop, and you see that there's so many people that actually seem to really care about this park and the dinosaurs that are in it and what might actually happen, but here's the problem with that, is I'm still not sold that this is a story that we should be telling. I'm not so sure that this is the angle that they should be going with, but maybe they finally are going to go with the whole, should this be done or shouldn't it? Maybe that tug of war is actually going to happen. And that was the thing that I was hoping for was that, okay, here's a group that wants to save these dinosaurs, these animals. Here's a group that thinks this is a horrible idea and we should just let them get wiped out. And what is the cause of this whole thing happening. What is the catalyst? Because if somebody's involved in this and this is a purposeful thing, then this gives this this gives this movie another dimension. And I I talked about this during the first trailer too. But nothing is telling me, nothing's really giving me a hint as to where that story is going. You you kind of feel like they might be doing the tug of war type thing based on this trailer a little bit. But this movie looks like it's going to be way heavier than the first one. And the first one definitely had its heavy moments, but this one looks like it's going to go more of the heavy route, maybe even a little bit more of a horror route. Probably not a whole lot because this they are still going to want to make this rating enough so, you know, younger kids can go see it as well. But I, I don't know. This is, this is one, to me, that could go either way. This is a feast or famine type of thing. This is either going to be really good or it's going to fall flat on its face, and I'm really hoping it's the former and not the latter. One more Super Bowl trailer to talk about as far as movies concerned was Mission Impossible Fallout. And this one feels a little bit uncomfortable, actually, if you're a Mission Impossible fan, because you've got Ethan Hunt, and it looks like, you know, choices that he made maybe going to start to catch up with him. And then, again, here comes Henry Cavill once again, and you see the interactions between the CIA and Ethan's team. And Henry Cavill says in the trailer, he says, you know, how many times has Hunt's government betrayed him and when has he had enough? And I think, and here is a trailer that actually says, okay, here's where we're going with this, or at least we're giving you a hint of where we're going with this. This is this could be a Ethan decides to go rogue type movie. And then therein lies the title Fallout. What is the fallout from that? And they also talk about choices that he makes affecting him and his team. And that is who Ethan is for, not necessarily his country, but his team, and it's always been that way, but what are the consequences of that? And it looks like that's exactly what we're going to be dealing with in this movie. And, you know, when you see a Mission Impossible movie, especially based on the last one, 
you know that the stunts are going to be amazing. That's just where it's at. And, and you know, I don't worry about that at all. And seeing the, they actually put the, the, the stunt in the trailer where Tom Cruise broke his ribs, which I thought was a little bit hilarious that you would actually remind everyone of that. I mean, it is a cool stunt. And that's one of the reasons you go see this movie, right, is for the stunts. This is one of those movies where you can turn your brain off a little bit and just appreciate the great stunts that they throw in here because it's Mission Impossible. But this one actually looks like it might have a really decent story if they keep their focus, which I really, really hope they do. Let's go on to a couple of TV trailers now. We'll talk about really quickly the Westworld Season 2 trailer. Of course, it's going to be coming back in April. And, if I mean, again, this is another one of those things where after I saw Ex Machina... I was freaked out about AI. I really was. And, and any kind of AI presence. This, to me, if you weren't uncomfortable in season one of Westworld, this is the, okay, everybody's going to die now trailer, basically. This is the revolt trailer. This is like worst case scenario trailer. And justified? Probably. You know, at least a little bit. But, you know, it's one of those things where, you want to root for the humans because you're human, right? But then at the same time, you you also have a heart and you also have compassion. And, you know, where's the line drawn between human and AI, especially with advanced AI? And these are the questions that get brought up, okay? And this, this opens a larger door to stuff that might actually be happening in our society. Now, granted, this is, a, this is very much a fictional story. I totally understand that. And this is in no way based in reality. But what good shows do and what good entertainment does is it creates discussion for us as fans, right? It gives us something to talk about. And I think that's one thing that Westworld has done really, really well. I wasn't super into the first season of Westworld. I'll be completely honest about that. It didn't grab me like it did for some other fans. But I'm still intrigued to keep going with Westworlds. And and this trailer shows me that they're going to ramp up the intensity in this season, and that is something for this show that I do think is needed, and I do, and I am really, really looking forward to. Finally, we have Jessica Jones Season 2, which is going to be coming out a little less than a month from now, actually, and we finally get to see that Jessica is going to be dealing with her past. If there's, and, and again, this is a clear sign of where this show is going. So... We get to see Jessica. She's going to deal with her past. She's going to investigate what happened to her. We see that she does find some answers, but then she also talks about, you know, I'm dealing with my own stuff, and now I'm also dealing with these, you know, vigilantes who have powers and all these other things, and I'm dealing with with, with, with all these other villains that have powers, and this is a whole new world for her. But we also get to see they make note of a sidekick, and then there's Trish right next to her. So will we finally get to see it? Will we finally get to see the Hellcat? I don't know. If we do, I'm going to love the hell out of that. Pun completely intended. And will we get the suit? Will it be more of a you know, real-world adaptation like we've seen in a lot of Marvel and DC stuff that's on TV? I don't even, I'm not even sure I care. I really am not even sure I care. I just want this to happen finally and then i mean you you're, you're talking potential spin-offs and then you talk about everything that could happen with the with the disney streaming service with marvel and stuff like that so i'm all in for this i, I was a big fan of jessica jones it's one of my favorite marvel netflix shows so i think that this is one that i've been looking forward to for a while now and i'm glad that they're going to go the route that they should go and deal with her past because I'm not saying that Jessica Jones will get canceled, but what I am saying is is to take the opportunity that you're given now to do this now, and just in case we don't get any more, at least as fans, we feel like we get closure with this storyline. That's going to do it for a lot of This Week in Geektainment, and we've got just as much nerd news coming up for you next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey guys, this is Chloe Bennett from Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. On the week of our 200th episode, of course, there'd be a huge story like this from a galaxy far, far away. It's time for nerd news. And that's right. Creators David Benioff and D.B. Weiss from Game of Thrones are going to be writing and producing new Star Wars movies for Lucasfilms and, of course, Disney. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Not only is it going to be outside of the Skywalker saga, which, you know, we kind of expected, 
It's also going to be outside of the movies that Ryan Johnson is going to be working on. And now there's no release date for this. We also found out that there are several TV series that are also going to be coming, which are likely to be on streaming services. All this, of course, from StarWars.com. Now, I think it's really hard to judge this because I don't think you could judge a book by its cover here. It's not necessarily just because you're talking about creators of Game of Thrones doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to in any way, shape, or form, resemble Game of Thrones. We have to kind of throw that out the window at this point, don't we? Now, there's also no real way to know exactly what they're going to be doing with this because they're, again, in Star Wars canon, there's so much that's been unexplored through the novels and such and, and you know, just offhand references in movies in the past anyway that we don't really know where this is going to go. So, I mean, it, it's really hard for me to sit down and try and pick this apart. I mean, we still have the Skywalker children that we're not even dealing with as far as movies or TV. And I know that they said this is going to be outside of the Skywalker saga, but I mean, at some point we've got to deal with that, right? This, this is some, this is a story that needs to be told. But in any case, here's the deal. What you have here, in, instead of trying to figure out what this is in such an early stage, and this is something we probably aren't even going to see for another five-plus years. They might even wait until Ryan Johnson's stuff gets going before they even think about doing this movie-wise. Here's what we have. We have two proven entities that are attached to one of the biggest fandoms in nerd culture that are coming from another huge fandom in nerd culture so I don't think that this is anything but a good thing. I mean, if you want somebody with a track record to work on something that you love, right? And, of course, they love Star Wars as well. So I think that that's what we're going to get. We're going to get creators that love Star Wars that are going to go all out to make sure they tell a great story. But they're also going to go all out to tell their own story. Because think about Game of Thrones deviating from the George R.R. Martin novels, and they're starting to stretch out a little bit and do their own thing. And whether you think that's a good thing or not, that shows a lot of balls, especially once Game of Thrones started being successful, saying, you know what, we've got good stories we want to tell, so we're going to do this. I think that that's a fantastic thing. I I think it shows that they've got what it takes to work on something like Star Wars and give us something a little bit different. And that's the one thing I'm worried about, though. We're being so inundated with Star Wars right now. It's almost like it's not as special as it was anymore. You know, we're not being given a chance to miss it anymore. And sometimes, especially in today's nerd culture where we're getting so much, I feel like we need a chance, we need time to miss something to be able to really appreciate it and love it again. Because Star Wars, we're getting so much of it now. Now we're going to get TV series as well. And I'm not saying I don't want these things. What I'm saying is, is that sometimes it's nice to get a little bit of a break. Like with Man of Steel, for example. The Man of Steel sequel has been shoved in the corner. Maybe most of that is because of what's been happening with Justice League and what's been happening with the with what happened with the first Man of Steel movie. Yeah, that's probably got more to do with it. But... They're going to push the Man of Steel movie because they want to give us a chance to miss Superman and give us a chance to remember what it was like when Superman was great, right? So that's a, I think that's a, a brilliant move on DC's part, pushing that. Now, with Star Wars, at what point are we going to say, okay, I'm not sure I really want this anymore because that could actually happen. Think about that for a second. As much as you love Star Wars, how many bad things or mediocre things are you going to see before you get You know what? I, I, I'm out. I, I, I'm just going to focus on what I've already seen. Or you'll just rant about it on social media one way or the other. I think that we are in a real danger with Star Wars anyway of that happening. Speaking of Game of Thrones, we have someone else that's attached to Game of Thrones going to be working on something for Amazon Studios, and it's something that I'm not surprised at all is happening. A Conan the Barbarian series, TV series, is going to be coming according to Deadline. Now, Ryan Condal, who, who's going to be the creator and the writer of this, is also the co-creator of Colony. We have Miguel Saponichnik, who is the director on Game of Thrones. Warren Littlefield, who is the executive producer of The Handmaiden's Tale. They're all involved in this, and I'll get to that in a second. This is going to retell... The classic story of Conan based on the literary origins, according to the story. And he's going to be kind of searching for his place in a world where people think he's a mindless savage. Now, let's talk about that for a second. Think about what they're going to do with this then. They're going to make this probably a more 
cerebral and deep version of Conan the Barbarian than we've ever seen on any screen. Think about that for a second. They're actually going to explore the fact that Conan's like, hey, I'm more than just a warrior here. And I know that that maybe has kind of been done on screen a little bit before in different kind of iterations maybe. But this one here just feels different to me. It looks like they really want to stay true to the source material and you can almost never go wrong staying true to the source material. I think what you also have, look at the collection of people you've got working on this. You've got people from Colony. You've got people from Game of Thrones and from The Handmaiden's Tale. Those are three somewhat similar, but at the same time, somewhat very, very different worlds. And I think you combine that and what you're going to get is something from a Conan standpoint that we've never seen before. And to me, Conan the Barbarian, I always wondered, why are we just not doing a series? I know that the, that the everything your brain tells you, you should be doing movies with this, right? But at the same time, if you want to really tell the story the way it's told in the literary realm, whether it be comics or novels or anything like that, to me, the long-form TV just makes sense. And again, Amazon has no problem spending money. They're certainly spending money on a lot of their other shows and movies and stuff, so it's not like you're going to get shortchanged on this, but I don't think you have to you have to spend a ton of money to do a Conan show properly anyway. So what's going to be interesting is is that it's going to be set in the in the Conan realm. It's going to be everything's going to be set in that time period that we know from the books. So let's see how this starts off, how close to an origin type thing they're going to go with this, and then how quick and who's the foil? That's the other thing. Who's going to be the big bad? Or do you even need a big bad? Is society itself going to be his big bad? And is that enough for you? Could this be too cerebral? Do you need that action? I think that at least in the first season, we might get action sparingly. And and maybe we'll have to be okay with that. And maybe this is because it's going to be a little bit different of a Conan story than just constant action and just constant blood everywhere, which, quite frankly, I think I'm fine with. Here's something else I really, really love. DC Comics. This was a story in the New York Times and has been kind of expanded on throughout the weeks. Is launching two, not one, but two New young adult graphic novel imprint. So let's start out with DC Inc., which is going to be targeted more towards teenage years. And then we have DC Zoom, who's going to be targeted to, you know, middle school, like 8 to 12-year-olds, stuff like that, or, or late elementary school, I should say. Now, for example, DC Zoom is going to have a story called Black Canary Ignite with Meg Cabot, who, of course, worked on The Princess Diaries. And then you look at DC Inc., and it has Mariko Tamaki, who's going to be working on a Harley Quinn graphic novel. And Daniel Page, best-selling author, is going to be working on a book with Mira. And then you have another story that's getting a lot of attention with Superman taking on the Ku Klux Klan. And i got to tell you, I brought this up to Shea Fontana when I was in D.C. and D.C. 2018, if you've seen the video. The progression that D.C. has of going from young reader to adult reader just got 10 times better because Shay said something that I thought was really interesting uh, when I was talking to her. She said, you know, when you look at it, because I asked her about that before this story even came out, and she said, you know, if you look at the weekly releases, you better have something for everybody, right? Enter this project right here. I don't know if she knew about that when she when she was answering me and, and of course couldn't tell me what was going on, but that's exactly what this does. What are you doing? to hook your readers from a younger age and make them want to read your books as adults. To me, this is brilliant. This is everything that indie publishers try to do, but not with a linear storyline. Because you have indie publishers like Boom Studios, for example, has Boom, and then they have Boom Box, and they have Kaboom. So they have that progression, but you're not necessarily telling stories with the same characters. They're different characters, and there's nothing wrong with that. But... If In DC's case, they want you to fall in love with characters from a younger age and then follow them into adulthood, like Harley Quinn, like Mara, like Black Canary, like Superman, Batman. Shea Fontana is going to be working on a Batman story for one of these imprints. So if you want to do that, do it from a young age and do it yourself. Because I know that you know you know you have the other young young adult books and you have other stuff out there that does tell stories with these characters in them, but they're not being done in your house. Do things yourself and tell the stories that you want to tell. And that's exactly 
what DC is going to be doing here and doing it in graphic novel form, I think is great. There's nothing wrong with comics at all, but it's a lot easier to get a kid to sit down and read a graphic novel from start to finish. Let, let them get hooked on a longer form story. Make it be something that they either can pick up and put down and continue with or pick up and not be able to put down and get them a nice long reading session. Because as a parent, that's what I want my kid to do. I want my kid to sit down with a book and want to stay there with that book as long as he wants to. I want him. I actually want him to be able to sit down with a book and read it from start to finish and not be done in 20 pages and want to move on to something else. I want him to get engaged. I want him to be engrossed in what he's reading. And I think that's kind of what DC is hoping is going to happen here. But bravo for them for taking control of their own characters and their own destiny here and wanting to dictate how they can get their young readers hooked on their characters early and get them to love their characters. I think that this is a, another brilliant move by DC to actually care about young readers, which is something a lot of major imprints don't necessarily do. I, and, and I think that bravo for them for doing that and bringing on so many great creators to do so. Here's something that DC is doing that I might not be so thrilled with. And I actually laughed out loud when I saw this. Uh, according to The Wrap, Michael Bay may be in talks to direct the Lobo movie. I'm not even kidding. So apparently he's met with DC and Warner Brothers and actually given notes about the script that kind of already exists by Jason Fuchs, who's doing, who also worked on Wonder Woman, and and you know talking about maybe rewriting it and doing some different stuff, and that could be the the thing that makes him want to be the director of this project. Here's the thing: Do we want him to be the director of this project? I don't know. I really don't because. With Lobo, yeah, I mean, a lot of stuff's going to blow up, and it's going to be over the top. It's going to be more Deadpool-esque when you're talking about Lobo. I get that. We're not going to get a serious, hardcore Lobo story here. I understand that. I'm not even sure that this is something we should be doing at this stage, if I'm being totally honest. I think Lobo is either going to be one of those home runs where you don't expect it to be a home run, or it's going to be a disaster that we throw on the heap of, of, of reasons for people to not like DC films. What I'm saying is is that I'm not sure, based on what I've seen from what Michael Bay's been doing at Paramount, that we want him even in the DC studios in the first place. Because, as you can see, Michael Bay gets in there and he sort of starts to creep out to other things, like from Transformers to Turtles, and then all of a sudden you're like, what's happening? Now, I will say I enjoyed the last two Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movies, but the last two Transformers movies... Not so much. So I'm not saying that Michael Bay is terrible at his job. I'm really not, despite stuff that you've heard on this show in the past. I'm sorry. Um, you know, I've been very critical of Michael Bay. But at the same time, I'm just not sure that this is for him. And I could be totally wrong about that. If what you're doing is trying to make a splash with the director and, and have stuff blowing up all over the place, then then you found the right guy. For sure. If you're not worried about story and you just want to have fun, maybe you found the right guy. But at the same time, if you want him involved in the script, I don't know about that. That's the thing that scares me more than him being the director, is having him involved with the script. I'm just not sure that that's a good idea. So, I mean, if I wasn't worried enough about the Lobo movie, now I'm even more worried. That's going to do it for Nerd News. Up next, it's our 200th episode. We're going to celebrate just like we did with our 100th episode by talking about Gotham, this time with Tabitha Gallivan herself. Jessica Lucas joins me next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is B.D. Wong from Gotham on Fox, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, for our 200th episode, we kind of go back a little bit because for our 100th episode, we talked about Gotham, so why not talk about Gotham once again 100 episodes later, and I can't think of anybody better right now to talk to than Tabitha Gallivan herself. It's Jessica Lucas. <laughs> Jessica, how you doing? I'm doing great. So now, Tabitha's actually been no stranger to be at or near the top of Gotham since we kind of first saw her, so... How has it been to have such an impact on the show right from the start? I feel uh, really excited and grateful that, that this job came along. And um, I can't believe that the characters had the impact it has. I think when you come into a show that's already in its second season, um, you're worried about fitting in or what the audience will think or will you fit in seamlessly. And 
um, I've experienced nothing but love from the fans um, right from the get-go, so I'm very grateful for that. I love the fact that, that a show like Gotham has such a great group of strong women on the show, and now we have a fairly big alliance that's being formed, so how did it feel adding Sophia Falcone to your existing group? Uh, great. I think the more the merrier. And uh, Sophia Falcone is certainly a woman to be reckoned with in the world of Gotham. But I think at its core, Sirens really is about Barbara, Tabitha and Selena and that relationship between those three women, that that sisterhood um, that's really growing and developing. And that's going to really carry on throughout the rest of the season. One of my favorite scenes from this season actually was with you and Drew Powell together, who plays, of course, Butch, and when Tabitha is trying to bring Butch back from kind of his grundy <laughs> haze, as I like to call it. So what mm-hmm. was it like shooting that scene? I love that scene. Yeah, um, Danny Cannon directed it, um, and uh, I, I remember being nervous to shoot it because I felt like it was really important. And um, I just, I don't know, I thought it was an, uh, an amazing moment that we don't really get to see of her where she was, vulnerable and angry um at the same time um and actually uh one of the first times the audience gets to really truly understand that that she has an emotional connection to this person and that she's not just um an emotionless badass that she that she also can feel that kind of connection to another human as well so i thought it was a great scene i feel like we really haven't quite seen the last of that relationship actually do you feel like tabitha has moved on at this point or do you feel like she's just, <laughs> she just can't give up on him you know Right. Well, remember, she doesn't know that he is now Butch again, um, at least inside. So um, I'm sure that will come to her attention at some point. I don't think that that will ever be be uh, fully over. I think that that's always an internal battle within her. Uh, she maybe doesn't want to admit that she cares about him as much as he does. As she does. So uh, I think that will keep playing throughout the season. You'll get to see more of that dynamic. We're talking to Jessica Lucas, who, of course, plays Tabitha Gallivan on Gotham, which returns March 1st at 8 p.m. on Thursday on Fox. Now, Jessica, it's going to be great seeing Tabitha, Barbara, and everyone back in charge of the club, which, of course, which was once the Iceberg Lounge. So if you had your own club, what would you name it, and what would be the first song you'd dance to? <laughs> um, what would I name it? I don't even know. I'm not like a nightclub girl, so I don't even know. Mine would be like something to do with like spirituality and relaxation or something. What song am I really loving right now? Um, Let's go with, I really like Despacito. Nice. I mean, I know it's kind of overplayed at the moment, but I do love that song. If you love it, you love it. There's, There's no denying that. Right. I could see walking through the doors of your club, though, and then meditation music is playing and people are looking around like, whoa, what's going on here? I actually think that would be kind of neat. Yeah, there's like... Yeah, there's like a sitar player in the corner and, um, you know, there's tea and you sit on the floor. That's kind of more my vibe. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Very, very cool. Now, we know that <laughs> Tabitha has been a mentor of sorts to Selena, but it seems like Selena is showing more and more independence. So where do you see their relationship standing at this point? And could her independence actually be a source of friction at some point, you think? Hmm. Um. Yes, I do think potentially. I mean, I do think there's a mentorship there. It's, it's, um, but she appreciates Serena's, uh, Serena, Selena's strength, um, uh, on her own. Um, and she, I, I think she understands that she's like, a, she's a, you know, she's strong in her own right. So I don't, I've never seen it as a relationship like with Alfred and Bruce, where she's really trying to like teach her how to be in the world. It's more, she's more there for guidance. Um, I think than anything else. Um, and, you know, Tabitha really cares about loyalty. So um, if that were to be broken for any reason, then then that's, you know, where the friction would come from between the characters, I think. Staying within the group, too. I mean, if, if Tabitha has a complicated relationship with anyone on the show, it has to be Barbara. So where do you kind of <laughs> feel like that stands? And we see we saw in one of the previews for one of the upcoming episodes that Rachel Ghoul might not quite be done either. So what would it be like to have her confront him as well? Yeah, I love the, the back and forth dynamic between those characters. Um, and uh, yeah, I always see them as uh, there's, there's definitely a connection there, but they need each other more, uh, more than anything than the fact that they actually get along. Um, I mean, their core values are very different. So um, I think they're constantly bump, uh, butting heads. Um, and that you'll see that come again, you know, it's like, uh, you know, uh, Barbara com- always has this, you know, ego thing and she always has to be um, in charge and in power. And that really rubs Tabitha the wrong way because she cares about friendship and loyalty. So um, 
you know, as that, that race storyline starts to come out again, Barbara's going to start to lose her head again. And so that will cause friction between them. As you've been playing Tabitha now for a couple of seasons, what have you learned personally from playing this character? Um, I think I've learned that I'm much stronger physically than I thought I even was. I mean, I played sports growing up and I really always wanted to have an opportunity to do stunts um, and play a role that had a lot more physicality to it. And um, I've had the opportunity with her and and, then learning to do the stunts because we have to throw them together quite quickly because we don't have a lot of time. And I've learned that I pick things up really quickly and uh, I didn't know that I would be that good at that. So um, that's been that's been my most favorite part of this job, I think. It's funny because you, you hear a lot of people talking these days about wanting to have more strong women on television. And I feel like Gotham has kind of been doing that from the beginning and almost going unnoticed. Would you feel do you feel the same way? Yeah, I mean, I think the comic book world in general uh does a pretty good job of making their women strong physically. Um, And then I think the great thing about doing a long running television series of comic book characters is that you get to make them more into well-rounded, well-developed people, as opposed to just these one, no one dimensional drawings. Um, And I think the writers have done a really uh, great job with that. Um, And we have, you know, some great women writers in our writer's room and I'm sure that has a lot to do with it as well. Oh, absolutely. As a matter of fact, you don't really see, females really in any genre play the enforcer as much as you have so when you got the role was that did you see that and you got like all right i get to be a badass this is great yeah i did i mean i that like i said the physicality and there wasn't a lot to go on from from the beginning when i read the script i didn't really know what they were going to do with her um i knew that she was going to be this kind of the sidekick to her brother and that that she would come into her own more over the course of the season and then you know further into the series so yeah, I didn't I didn't really know where they were going to go with her. And I think they've taken a lot of cues off of me and what I've been able to bring to the character as well. And I'm, I'm like, pleasantly surprised. I mean, the Sirens was a big surprise mm-hmm. for me because she's not a part of the Sirens in the comics. And I did not know that I was going to be part of that when I signed up for the show. Do you like having those surprises? I mean, the fans being so familiar with the source material, but I actually think that Gotham in its surprises and the thing that's, things that it's done have taken some really unique kind of offsets to the comics. Is it cool to be able to do that? And and is it kind of funny to see the fan reaction to that sometimes? Yeah, I love that. I mean, I, I love when people go outside the box and are creative personally. Um, it's not fun if you just follow the rules. So I love that. And I think that mostly the fans have been really good about embracing the changes um, that they understand that this is our version of a story, our interpretation of a story that's been told many times. And you just, you don't want to see the same thing that you've seen the last, you know, however many years Batman has been around. Um, so I, I'm, I'm happy that they're taking liberties with the storytelling. Now, Jessica, power makes people do crazy things in Gotham. If we've learned nothing, we've learned that. So it seems like the alliance is strong now. But as the show returns on March 1st, do you think that Tabitha <laughs> fully trusts the ladies on her team? <laughs> uh, I think she really wants to. Um you know, I think that she is loyal to her core. So if anything, if she was ever to split from a group or to be upset with people in a group, it's usually because of what they're doing and their behavior um, more than anything. Cause she comes from that family um, dynamic with the Gallivans where family is everything. So I would say some other people might be a catalyst for her to be pretty upset going forward. Oh, that sounds pretty juicy. Well, we know the show comes back on March 1st, but Jessica, before I let you go, finish this statement for me. Tabitha is the most blank woman in Gotham. <laughs> uh, Tabitha is the most badass woman in Gotham, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Gotham returns Thursday, March the 1st at 8 p.m. Eastern, and we know that she's going to be a huge part of it. It's Jessica Lucas. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Thank you for having me. To say that Tabitha Gallivan is a badass on Gotham, I think is definitely maybe the understatement of the 200 episodes of this show that we have done because she is amazing. So make sure you're watching Gotham when it returns March 1st. That's a Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern to watch not just Jessica, but all the great stories that are going on on Gotham. It's kind of full circle for us here because... On our 100th episode, we have B.D. Wong, who, of course, plays Hugo Strange on the show. And now here we are, 200 episodes and 100 episodes since then, talking about Gotham as well. I mean, that kind of tells you how I feel about Gotham, which I think is an amazing show. That if you haven't even started watching it, I mean, just go on Netflix and start binging the thing so you can be ready by March 1st. 
That's going to do it for our 200th episode of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thank you for joining me this week. And for any other shows that you might have listened to or any other time you've jumped on with the show, I appreciate it. Gonna, I'm going to keep just doing as much as I can to bring you the best show possible. And, I mean, here's to another 200 because that's where... I really want this thing to head. Make sure you're following us everywhere we are. First of all, at downandnerdypodcast.com. That's where you can find out all about the show and make it easy to get everything on social media. As a matter of fact, we're at facebook.com slash downandnerdy, at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and on Instagram. You can subscribe to us on SoundCloud, on TuneIn, on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, so many different places. Just subscribe to our RSS feed. You can do that as well if you want to follow the show from here on out. Love to have you back each and every week. And just like I've been saying for a while now, you never have to apologize for being a nerd. So let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.